Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Tepi Podcast, a space for conversations about peace in Northeast Asia. In the most recent episode, I got to talk with Mary Joyce about her work with Tokyo-based international NGO Peaceboat. Mary offered a lot of rich insight into the work Peaceboat does and conversations she's gotten to have about peacebuilding in the region. Be sure to go listen to that episode if you haven't already. As for this episode, you'll get to hear from Paul Lee, who works as a program specialist for youth programs at the United States Institute of Peace, where he works to strengthen the capacity of young leaders to build sustainable social change in their communities and contribute to the field of youth, peace, and security. Outside of his official work, Paul also leads an organization called Divided Families USA that works to help facilitate closure for elderly Korean Americans separated from their families in North Korea. And he hosts the Divided Families podcast, a platform for connecting stories of family separation. Our conversation touches on themes such as the power of personal stories to heal division, the complexity involved in the construction of national identity, and the insights into conflict and facilitation Paul has learned through working with youth from around the world. I had a lot of fun and learned a bunch while getting to talk with Paul. I hope this conversation offers you something as well. With that, here is Paul Lee. Paul, thanks again for uh, coming on the podcast. For those who maybe don't know you or know the work you're involved with, could you give us a little introduction to yourself and what you're involved with? Yeah, sure thing. Austin, just thank you so much for having me on. Honestly, I'm a huge fan of the Tepi podcast. I have listened to every single episode, actually. So I thank you. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about uh, having the opportunity to, to speak with you. So this is super exciting. And for those of you who may not know about me, um, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I work uh, at the U.S. Institute of Peace on uh, the youth program. And basically what I do with the U.S. Institute of Peace or USIP is I I try to help uh, young people from around the world, from Latin America to uh, Africa to the Middle East, basically everywhere except for Northeast Asia, actually, in my official portfolio uh, to strengthen their capacity to create social change in their communities. That's my full-time job, but outside of work, I've found myself involved in uh, work on divided families, mostly Korean-American divided families, but I've done a little bit of podcasting myself for the past two years, uh, and I, I think I'm really passionate about Um, community-based dialogue and facilitating interactive uh, workshops uh, like uh, there's something called Straight Talk uh, which is a a workshop for young people from mainland China, Taiwan, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that I think piqued my interest and my passion in this field uh, that I would love to talk about more as well but those are that's uh, uh, in a nutshell what I've been involved with. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot there. And I'm sure we'll dive in a little bit deeper into some of those areas you're working in. But from a broad view, it seems like a lot of your work is in uh, these broad domains of family and division and peace building and even international politics at some level. And uh, I'm curious how you initially got involved with all of this type of work that you're in these days. 
Yeah, I think I've been reflecting on this question a lot of the personal reason I've been involved. Yeah. You know, for example, when you're in college, or at least I'll just speak for myself, when I was in college, mm-hmm. I think I was really driven by the fact that uh, things were so new. Everything was new, really, from the things I was learning, like languages to the topics, uh, whether it was North Korea or whether specifically like human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I got to a point uh, where, especially during the pandemic, things start, you know, the, the days start feeling uh, either longer or, or shorter, depending on, on what you do. And you start yeah. questioning yourself and even start to uh, feel a little burnt out. So I started asking myself the same question. And I think ultimately it's about uh, my family for me. It's mm-hmm. about uh, my grandparents. And I think I've, I've shared that before of my personal connection to my grandparents who uh, I grew up with. And uh, they're the reason that I, I care about both North and South Korea and yeah. uh, can speak Korean and care about Northeast Asia, I think. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I think a lot of people share that story, uh, whether you're an immigrant or not, or whether you're from Northeast Asia or not. But I think what I wanted to share about w- how I got involved is that even though I had this interest, I was only exposed in college and I, I did all of my schooling uh, from kindergarten in the U.S., and mm-hmm. I was only exposed to this field of you know, security and national defense and mm-hmm. uh, grand strategy, which I think is common in a lot of university curriculums around the U.S. and around the world. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really until after I graduated from college, and when I attended this one workshop called Straight Talk uh, at Brown University that I realized that there was a different way of thinking about these issues, a different way of thinking about uh, peace and conflict, uh, not just through the lens of, of deterrence and through uh, the great power competition and through you know, building up arms and through this uh, grand strategy lens, but rather through the lens of storytelling and to connecting people uh, with you know, heart-to-heart communication yeah. And on a on a personal level, which resonated a lot more with me. So mm. yeah, yeah, that's basically how I, I shifted from you know, studying political science and security, uh, which is how I got started, to more of the community-based, uh, human-based peace building. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I've seen similar or heard similar stories several times of how like this this power of storytelling and hearing stories and um, encountering people across divides or borders kind of shifts people's perspective from the, like you said, grand strategy into this this human-based, this connection-based way of, of viewing the world and uh, viewing what is security, what is safety, what is peace. And that's so awesome to, to hear that story from you. Um, you mentioned the Straight Talks was at, at Brown University was a big kind of catalyst in that process for you. Um, and you mentioned you're, you're kind of more involved with that Straight Talk Symposium now. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more uh, about it and kind of how you got involved with that and uh, what you were learning as a participant or what you're doing there now with uh, the kind of conflict dialogue or the workshops there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm a, I'm definitely a believer in Straight Talk. And to give a snapshot of it, Basically, it started 15 years ago mm-hmm. at 
uh, Brown University, actually probably more than 15 at this point, um, at Brown University. And it was a student-led, a student at the time, um, Johnny Lin. He had this idea uh, to bring together young people uh, from mainland China, Taiwan, and the U.S. And to he invited a Japanese professor named Tatsushi Arai, who has become one of my you know, mentors and role models in this field of peacebuilding, uh, to for five days of dialogue and interactive conflict resolution. And by the end of these five days, what these 15 people, you know, five from each place, uh, were supposed to do were, was to come up with a consensus document that each person signs up on uh, to meet the needs of each party in the cross-strait conflict. So basically a vision uh, of peacefully resolving the tensions across the Taiwan Strait. And it was so transformative for me um, because, you know, I think I grew up with being exposed to debate, you know, where each person is uh, tries to convince uh, the other person or the judge uh, of their own position. And there can be only one winner and only one loser. And then when I, <laughs> I also got a taste of a Model United Nations or Model mm-hmm. UN, yeah. which is more like role play and discussion based. And honestly, I was never very good at debate or model UN (laughs) because either I I would always end up agreeing with both sides basically, or my opponent. And I I never felt like I could really be my own authentic self when Mm -hmm. doing the kind of role play for model UN. Uh, But I think this kind of engagement of, of straight talk and of dialogue where, you know, everyone is considered an expert, actually, mm-hmm. uh, even maybe not a thematic expert, but mm-hmm. an expert on their own stories, on their mm-hmm. own emotions, and their own perspectives. For example, uh, one activity that Straight Talk always does is called the walk through history, mm-hmm. where each side uh, comes up with a, a timeline of what's most important, the seven most defining events uh, in in this case, cross-strait relations. And you mm-hmm. get three uh, fairly different timelines in most mm-hmm. cases. And for example, that exercise is filled with different stories of personal connections mm-hmm. uh, to the timeline. So I was so inspired. Uh, really, it was I was so inspired. Uh, not just, I had studied in mainland China and Taiwan in college. So I mm-hmm. had a personal connection as well. And I was part of the US delegation. But I was inspired that this kind of model could make an impact in other areas as well, like in North and South Korea or between uh, Korea and Japan and China. So yeah. I've tried to apply that model uh, in other contexts and I, I've stayed on uh, to be involved as a facilitator as well for Straight Talk. Uh, so last year, we actually started the, a new chapter uh, through a virtual platform with uh, George Washington University. So it was the first one on Zoom. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I'm inspired just hearing you talk about it. That sounds like a really meaningful uh, workshop and, and uh, symposium they have going there. Yeah. Uh, I like how you mentioned the word needs. These people are talking about kind of their needs and trying to collaborate and come to an agreement about their shared needs. Cause like you were mentioning and kind of, I think security based uh, approaches to international conflict or even personal conflict, I think like, so many times I've seen those needs kind of get thrown out. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think like centering 
those at the center of the conversation so valuable. Um, so that approach is, is that what the interactive conflict resolution approach is kind of trying to come up uh, with this new way of, of talking about the conflict across the strait? Or yeah, what, could you talk a little bit about what that ICR or interactive conflict resolution is? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think it's a way of not just coming to a compromise, actually, mm -hmm. where you know, both sides or all sides might be somewhat satisfied, but not completely satisfied. You know, everyone walks away feeling a little bit of regret. Uh, it's moving even beyond that to a solution that could be even more innovative so that mm -hmm. it actually meets everybody's needs uh, without compromising any of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may sound quite idealistic actually, but I think the point of the workshop was to get participants to think outside the box and to you know, first identify uh, the needs of yeah. every participant. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think even from the get-go, the uh, workshop always starts by sharing a, a symbol or a metaphor mm -hmm. uh, of the cross-strait conflict, for example. And I think just right from the get-go, that's a sign for me that uh, it's not just the typical introduction of sharing your name and what you do and where you're from, um, but trying to think differently about about the conflict, because yeah. so many times we're, at least in D.C., we're having the same conversations uh, and the same topics and the same people who we engage with. So it, it's trying to think outside of that box, at least for five days. That's interesting. Yeah. Like you say, trying to think outside of that box for a few days. I wonder when you're thinking about the conversations that you get to have or you've seen being had in DC and then you compare those with the conversations that you've seen happening or been able to participate in uh, here in Northeast Asia or uh, in Colombia or wherever you're doing these workshops and interacting with youth. How would you describe those two conversations and yeah, how would you compare them in, in your experience? Mm, I think it's actually quite difficult mm. for me to think through that question yeah. because I would expect there to be, you know, the conversations in DC, your stereotypical you know, people in suits around the business room talking very seriously about a topic, which does happen for sure. And then the, on the grassroots level, people you know, having very different conversations and, mm. and dancing and having fun. But actually, I actually feel that the spaces that I've been in, uh, whether for straight talk or for more one-off uh, dialogues and, and workshops that I facilitated with uh, an organization called International Student Conferences. There's mm -hmm. the Korea America Student Conference, Japan America Student Conference, China America Student Conference, mm -hmm. and I've uh, facilitated some workshops for them, yeah. uh, for example, and they're all youth from Northeast Asia. And mm, yeah. last year for... So I mentioned my primary portfolio is everywhere except for Northeast Asia, but right. my personal passion is to try to try to bridge my limited knowledge on Northeast Asia and my limited knowledge on this functional side of dialogue facilitation, peace building, uh, to try to bridge those two areas where they intersect. So mm -hmm. last year, I was able to pilot um, this Zoom workshop for young mm -hmm. people from North Korea, so North Korean defectors, and South Korean and U.S. youth on 
envisioning peace on the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So I, I say all of this, all these different examples of young people I've engaged with, because I think, like for me, I was saying to your very first question, because the precedent is so strong of, you know, the, the inertia or the gravity is so strong to use the language of DC, of, mm. of security and power and, you know, competition. I think that's kind of the natural inclination of young people as well to to go down that route. Mm -hmm. So I I really think that I've it's through meeting people through NARPI, uh, for example, uh, or you know some people I've met through Straight Talk, and just just some people that I've met uh, that I've met randomly as well that mm -hmm. I've been able to find uh, what's called my people is an exercise that we always yeah. do in this generation change follows program, but people who share the same uh, values mm -hmm. and the same approach, not just looking at these issues of the Taiwan Strait or uh, the division of the Korean Peninsula as one that's about national interests mm -hmm. and about you know, geopolitics, but one that actually affects you know people like you and me uh, that mm -hmm. affects families and that affects personal relationships yeah, so yeah. i yeah if that uh, question was not as uh, clear cut uh in reality as yeah. as i had initially thought so mm -hmm. i think i've actually been trying to be more proactive about seeking out these spaces mm -hmm. and it seems like actually you know you and, and tepi and peace momo are actually involved in a lot of these spaces so i would love to learn more about that in another conversation oh yeah well i mean i think we're all kind of learning as we go and I'm, i think that's kind of part of being a peace builder is that openness to just continue learning as as we engage and as we try to yeah, go deeper into what is peace and how do we bring that into reality so mm -hmm. yeah i think we're all learning together for sure uh, you mentioned you on an official portfolio uh, are not directly engaged with Northeast Asia, but you have a personal passion for the divided peninsula. And you said you got to pilot a workshop with uh, South Koreans and North Koreans. Um, mm -hmm. So your work kind of in maybe an unofficial capacity is in some way dealing with the divided peninsula. And I think sometimes that division can get depicted as a kind of bilateral conflict between Koreans in the North, Koreans in the South, but I think as, as you know, and I think as people kind of here in the region can understand that division in some way is also multilateral uh, or that conflict yeah. is multilateral um, and involves all the countries here in Northeast Asia and including the U.S. And in, in some ways it can kind of feel very large and big. But I, when I talk to people in, engaged with that conflict or with division on the peninsula, I'm always curious to hear kind of what signs of, of hope they see or uh, what opportunities they see currently existing that we can kind of move towards uh, now, because I think at times unification or post-division can seem like such a far off, almost unreachable or untenable goal at times. But um, I think yeah. getting to talk with people who are, who are uh, having those conversations and on the front lines and um, working with people, like you're saying, connecting with personal stories, I, I find that there's at times kind of maybe not the grand unification that everyone is hoping for right tomorrow, but I think that there's 
um, steps and there's opportunities to at least move in some direction. So I'm curious, yeah, what opportunities do you see to move towards peace? Yeah, I totally agree with you that many people think about the conflict on the Korean Peninsula as simply a, a civil war. Mm-hmm. And you know, while I totally agree that it should be the people who reside on the Korean Peninsula or from the Korean Peninsula who should have that self-determination and you know be the drivers of a resolution. I think maybe this is my own uh, self-justification for being involved with this issue because I've naturally, even though I was born in South Korea, I've naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And that was a conscious decision for me because and, and part of me still wonders where what my own role is mm-hmm. as a quote-unquote outsider or third party mm-hmm. in some ways to the conflict as a U.S. citizen uh, looking in. And, you know, who am I to impose my own views on the conflict? But on the other hand, I think I'm starting to realize more and more that other parties, you know, not just the U.S., but also everyone else in the six-party talks, but everyone else in the world, actually, it's become uh, an issue that affects everybody. And not just on a legal basis, right? Like the armistice uh, was actually signed by more than just uh, North Korea, mm-hmm. um, for example, and the the influence of uh, the UN uh, forces as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the fact that it it affects so many Korean diaspora around the world, whether in the U.S., Japan, uh, China, and and so many other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question of what can be done, I think I always you know, I come from a human rights background, actually, mm-hmm. in college and a security background, but I found myself kind of uh, working with young people in my in my day job um, and then, you know, with things like straight talk and then also with uh, the elderly on the divided families issue. So mm-hmm. it's, I kind of find myself on the fringes um, or outside the mainstream yeah. of where a lot of these discussions happen. Mm-hmm. But so those would be my two suggestions actually mm-hmm. of working with young people and uh, trying to support the elderly mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll, you know I'll just try I'll just say a little bit more about what yeah, I mean yeah. by that and I think the most urgent thing that I've seen and you know why I decided why I'm still involved and why I decided to get involved in the first place with divided families is because I think that the separation of family members across the 30th parallel you know as a result of the Korean War, uh, it's led to over 70 years of trauma uh, for elderly Koreans around the world, including uh, my own grandfather. And I think time is running out. It almost seems cliche at this point. It, time is running out to bring closure to them. And I, I know that other people have talked about trauma and healing on this podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think when I think about it, it doesn't have to be just uh, you know, an ideal scenario, it would be a permanent reunion mm-hmm. or at least a regular interface yeah. or communication. But if that's not possible, at least getting the chance to share your own story, I think may be the next best form of healing for some people. Because at least for Korean Americans, which many people don't realize also have a stake in division of the Korean Peninsula. Many people just think about it as affecting North Koreans and South Koreans. Mm-hmm. But many Korean, Korean Americans have never spoken out uh, because of the fear of what might happen to their uh, family in North Korea or because of their own anti-communist views. So they've never 
shared with someone else or even their own family members about the trauma that they've experienced. So if I had an unlimited budget and unlimited time, I think, uh, and what I'm trying to do is trying to find ways to provide healing and closure through storytelling and through uh, recording and archiving these stories. So I think that's one. And then on the other side of young people who in theory should be innovators and should be the ones with creative solutions and approaches to break away from this echo chamber and from this rigid way that we we haven't gone anywhere with for the past 70 years Mm -hmm. on resolving conflict on the Korean Peninsula. So that's why I'm so passionate about ways to bring together young people from North and South Korea and the U.S., and hopefully other countries as well. And as I'm thinking about these two communities of young people and the elderly, I'm also realizing there's room for intergenerational dialogue, which was, as I mentioned, so important for me of my connection with my grandparents. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I know there's reluctance on both sides, especially in Northeast Asia, for uh, one side to listen to another, because at least in my family, the grandparents are always right. And it's usually the, the learning is usually unidirectional. Mm. Um, but I think it would be amazing if uh, if other people could have opportunities to open their hearts, open their minds to intergenerational dialogue, mm-hmm. because I think there's so much value uh, in that across generations. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree so much that yeah, the power of telling one's own story, I think can be so healing and uh, feeling that sense of, of having one's story understood by others, I think mm-hmm. is, is a healing process so many times. And also, uh, as I'm sure you've experienced through your, your podcast, the, the act of telling a story can be uh, so enriching for the, the listener as well, and educational, and I think be such a powerful resource, especially yeah, intergenerationally and across divides. So yeah. yeah, just for anyone who's listening, who maybe didn't catch it, um, you're the the host, one of the hosts, the co-host of the Divided Families podcast. So I definitely recommend that anyone listening to this podcast should go check out that podcast. I'll put a link in the description because yeah, I listened to uh, several episodes and it's such a great resource, I think. And uh, yeah, I think such a, a valuable resource for not just people interested in, in division, but I think anybody anyone who's part of a family at all i think is going to gain a lot from that podcast so yeah thanks for for doing that oh i'm flattered austin (laughs) although i gotta say i would much rather listen to your voice (laughs) than my voice Uh, any day uh, (laughs) you have a much better voice for podcast i think i I love your voice as well Uh, i want to shift a little bit we've talked kind of about intergenerational conversations uh, and kind of yeah cross-cultural communication or kind of yeah, different regional conversations, but I know some of the spaces you're involved with, I've seen looking at some of your work, it seems you're dealing a lot with uh, kind of national identity as well as cultural identity um, as you're talking about conflict and as you're talking about peace building. And so I'm wondering if you could share either from your own personal experience um, and kind of reflecting on your identity or maybe what you've seen from participants and workshops Either way, uh, maybe share about some of the ways you've seen national identity and cultural identity as a doorway into into new ways of thinking about peace building or potentially kind of a hindrance or a roadblock 
that it can present to peace building efforts? Kind of a big question there, but. Oh yeah, uh, this is a topic I care about so much and actually one that I co-facilitated a session with, a session of uh, the Northeast Asia Regional Peace Building Institute, right? Institute. Mm-hmm. Right, yep. Okay, NARPI. Um, and NARPI, as some people uh, might know, um, has, you know, is in person a summer program for young people from all over, or for people from all over Northeast Asia. Uh, but during the pandemic and during the past year, it's been hosting online sessions open to everybody on various topics. So actually, uh, a friend of mine from Straight Talk, who was actually the reason I discovered the Tepi podcast mm. uh, and learned about you, Austin, um, Da Ting Lu. Ah, um, great. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, we facilitate, co-facilitated uh, the session on rethinking national identity, just because it's a topic that I think many people feel strongly about, especially during the time of the pandemic, uh, where there are many incidents of anti-Asian uh, hate mm-hmm. and of rising anti-Chinese sentiment around the world, including in the U.S. and South Korea. Uh, but and what we found in this workshop was that you know many people actually think about national identity and cultural identity as a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I actually felt it was a huge self-esteem booster for me these past two weeks in Colombia yeah, because I was the only Asian person, East Asian person, it's the only Korean person there. And it was almost like uh, I had the celebrity status because uh, I was so different. And, you know, people liked K-pop and, you know, wanted to take photos and wanted to learn Korean. Yeah. So I think national identity and cultural identity really helps form those initial bonds. Mm -hmm. But I think it's difficult. And the flip side of what I was hearing in that online NARPI workshop is that many times people and governments and authorities and those in power try to Mm co-opt or try to exploit these feelings of pride and belonging that national identities fill. Mm Uh, in populism or in, you know, framing these national identities as being against someone else. Mm. And if there's one thing that I've, I can't tell you how many times I've heard how Koreans are so unique, you know, mm. how, yeah. how, you know, things like Chung and Han mm. and are so uniquely Korean that it's impossible to describe with other words. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's uh, actually maybe the way of talking about these topics maybe uniquely Korean, but I think the actual sentiment behind them are shared across a lot of other Mm. cultures as well, Mm -hmm. whether in Latin America or even in the U.S. So basically what we were trying to do, that Ting and I were trying to do with that workshop was to get people to think outside the box of national identities, but at the same time, not destroy the box per se. Um, Because, you know, I think I was trying to be like a global citizen of the world at one point and not totally shedding my national identity. But I think that just made me uh, feel more difficult and challenging to connect with people (laughs) for whom national identity was really important. So basically I think one of my takeaways from that workshop and on national identity in general is that it's 
very, very important. You know, I, I think I can identify myself as a, a Korean American, actually more as an American Korean, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I, I think it's okay to have these national identities as long as, you know, with this asterisk, as long as you think critically about what that national identity means mm-hmm. and where it comes from mm-hmm. and acknowledge the fact that me, you, uh, everyone else who we may see are more than just their nationalities. And we may be, you know, thinking about gender, about sexuality, about political preference, mm-hmm. about race and ethnicity, uh, so many other factors that, you know, about the fact that uh, we may be siblings mm-hmm. or we may be parents or we may be peace builders or podcast hosts mm-hmm. that may be more important to us than national identities. Mm-hmm. So I think my, uh, my, my caution is to not just look at somebody as purely through the lens of what passport they have yeah. or uh, what country they're from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love the way you said kind of trying to step outside the box or get outside the box without necessarily destroying the whole thing. And I think getting to have conversations on this podcast or off this podcast through through the work that Tepi's doing or uh, other places I've been in and seeing how yeah, national and cultural identity can be so complex and trying to kind of define it in a rigid way can uh, exclude some people and kind of hurt people and not be uh, useful. But I, I really like what you're saying of like throwing the whole thing away is not necessarily helpful either. And trying to build a strong identity as a way of connecting with people who have different identities kind of it seems like how I understand what you're saying. And I, I think that's yeah. so beautiful and so necessary, but I think not always um, spoken about or prioritized uh, these days as as kind of conflicts are, are starting to build and, and rupture in some places. So yeah, I love that. We've talked a lot here about so many of the different things you're involved with and yeah, you're just, you have so many cool projects and I really want to dive into to all of them, but um, I think I'll wrap up here with uh, one question, just kind of so many of the people who I think are involved uh, with civil society work or yeah, kind of trying to imagine a better world or work towards a better world, uh, I think can find themselves in work that's full of passion and meaning. But I think, and I'm sure you've probably experienced this at some point, that passion and meaning can at times feel like more than a full-time commitment um, and at times kind of be really uh, a lot. And uh, I'm wondering as someone who is involved in so many uh, valuable and important projects, how do you yourself stay centered and avoid getting burnt out? You know, I should have seen this coming. I did see this coming because I was listening to the episode with Moe and I think you asked a similar question. Mm So I should have uh, prepared myself more, <laughs> but it's something that I've been thinking about a, a lot as well, because to be honest, I was feeling super burnt out, mm. uh, especially during the pandemic. Mm. And I felt like exactly what you said of, for me, peace building and resolving conflict and working on divided families, working on dialogue is much more than just a job. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just something that when I, close my computer or sign off for the day, I can just stop thinking about. Mm-hmm. It's something that's 
so much more important than that. And I think the flip side of that is that it can be all consuming. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really difficult to have that quote unquote work life balance uh, when, you know, especially if you're working from home, uh, when your life, you know, is more, your work is more of a mission, uh, mission driven or vocation driven Mm -hmm. than just uh, an employment form of employment. So I think, you know, a couple of things that I've been thinking through that I, I think I've just been trying to work on myself mm-hmm. are one, you know, finding ways to take things one step at a time mm-hmm. and not feeling like I have to do everything. Mm-hmm. So for me, I know that my long term goal is to, I, I would love to, my dream job, my dream. Day to day is to be able to manage and implement and facilitate a program that brings together young people and elderly people, mm-hmm. people from all generations, to have meaningful dialogue uh, from Northeast Asia about historical issues and the tensions there. Yeah. But I think I'm trying to take it one step at a time. Uh, about you know, like what I'm doing now is trying to uh, learn the dialogue facilitation and the programming skills even if it's in other regions, mm. uh, so that, you know, it's a long, it's a marathon, mm-hmm. uh, not a sprint, as the yeah. saying goes. Yeah. Um, but I, I think also, I think uh, men- what a mentor has always told me is that, you know, I, as in anybody, uh, can do anything. Mm-hmm. We have the potential to do anything, mm-hmm. but we can't do everything. Mm-hmm. So we can only kind of bite off one piece of the pie. I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, finding your own role and your own niche and realizing that you're only one part of the puzzle Mm -hmm. and finding ways to support. So I'm just so grateful for my team members Mm -hmm. who fill so many important positions that I I can't do on my own Mm -hmm. in the podcast, for example, or a team of facilitators and board members for straight talk, Mm -hmm. uh, for example. So just finding a team and mentors, I think is so important. Mm -hmm. And then I think the, just the most important thing for me is just conscientiously, Mm -hmm. intentionally carving out time to do things that are not related directly to your primary work Mm -hmm. or your primary projects, Mm -hmm. because I often find myself uh, just actually working quote unquote, when, even if I'm not working, Um, so even if that means, you know, playing ping pong or mm-hmm. just, uh, just vegging out yeah. as my friend likes to say, yeah, yeah. on your phone, uh, or even just, uh, doing something completely different, yeah. like, uh, learning how to salsa dance. Oh, I fun. think, yeah, yeah, something that I've been trying to do. I think that's important in trying to bring more balance to your life mm. because you can't do it all, uh, every day. I, I, at least I can't do it all every day. Yeah, I mean, I can't either. I don't think anyone can do all of it. But yeah, I like that. Bring balance to your life. It's, I think, a good way to think about it. And trying to balance that, like you said, with a good team and with supportive people, I think is so important and really valuable. Yeah, I want to respect your time. So I think we can wrap up here. Thank you so much for sharing about all of the stuff that you're involved with and uh, all of the important projects and stuff. And I'll link to, to those below for people who want to check out more in detail. Wrapping up here, was there anything about your work that 
we didn't talk about that you think would be good to share or people might be interested in? Yeah, just one quick tidbit uh, about the Divided Families podcast, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I think I just wanted to share that my initial motivation was to mm-hmm. try to build greater empathy for Korean American divided families. Yeah, yeah. And I think what I discovered after interviewing you know, over 40 episodes mm-hmm. from the Holocaust to the U.S.-Mexico border mm-hmm. to Japanese-American internment camps to Uyghurs in Xinjiang, mm-hmm. uh, for example, so all over the world and all throughout history, is that you know, these issues are very, very different, but have the same sentiments, similar sentiments behind them of yearning to be heard, to be understood, to be united with other people. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I'm always a big proponent Mm -hmm. of learning from other contexts, Mm -hmm. uh, even if might not be exactly comparable to your own. Mm -hmm. So I just hope that, you know, Northeast Asia is a unique region in many ways. You know, there's no nothing like the the EU or ASEAN, for example, or these regional fora. Mm -hmm. And Northeast Asia has its own set of historical tensions and conflicts and trauma. Mm -hmm. But I think for anyone studying Northeast Asia involved with conflict and peace in Northeast Asia, I think I would just encourage them to try to look at other examples, Mm -hmm. uh, whether the classic example for Korea is uh, East and West Germany, Mm -hmm. but also to look at other contexts where it's, for example, post-Civil War reconstruction in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or uh, with the troubles in Northern Ireland, or even with truth-telling in Colombia mm-hmm. or South Africa, for example, because I think there's so many nuggets of wisdom to glean um, from around the world and through history, mm-hmm. even if, of course, Northeast Asia is very unique and very special <laughs> in my own heart as well. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I think there's so many nuggets of wisdom from from people from all over the world, and I think sharing through conversations and stories is is in my opinion one of the best ways to glean and kind of spread around those nuggets of wisdom so yeah thank you again for making that podcast and i'll link below for people who maybe want to check it out thanks so much justin well paul it's been a pleasure getting to hear all of the work and all the projects you're involved with and i really appreciate you making time for us and thanks for coming on the podcast thanks so much for the opportunity So that was Paulie sharing about the many ways he's involved in peace building, conflict resolution, dialogue about national identity, and connecting stories across divides. I hope through our conversation you were able to learn something new or perhaps gain a fresh perspective on something old. If you'd like to check out Paul's podcast or other parts of his work mentioned in our conversation, you can find links in the description of this episode. As I'm sure you already know, The field of peacebuilding is a diverse, multifaceted field of practice and study. Those working towards peace come into this work from a variety of perspectives and backgrounds. I hope the guests you hear from on this podcast offer you a glimpse into that multifacetedness and allow you to take something back into the context you find yourself in, and that these stories become a valuable resource for your own practice and study. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in the other work Tepi does, you can check us out at momotepi.org. That's M-O-M-O-T-E-P-I dot org. That's all I have for you today. 
I'll talk to you in the next episode with another guest sharing their perspective on peace in Northeast Asia.